Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is the last episode before I head out of town to get married. So big week here for uh, Pod Save the World franchise and Crooked Media. But uh, I would not leave town without putting together a fantastic show for you guys. It's a two-parter. First, I checked in with Ambassador Mike McFall. You probably have all seen the way he was targeted by Vladimir Putin in the Helsinki Summit meetings. There's been a lot written about this outrageous proposal by Vladimir Putin to try to get access to U.S. officials and Trump's refusal to shut it down immediately. So we talked about that and what it's been like for Mike during this crazy week. And then I talked to a fantastic journalist from The Washington Post named Jason Rezaian. He was the Washington Post bureau chief in Tehran for several years. He was actually taken captive by the regime. We got together because we wanted to talk about Donald Trump's tweet on Sunday night where he sent this all-caps rage tweet at President Rouhani of Iran attacking him. And the way that dovetails into this broader effort by the Trump White House to, you know, name, shame, and destabilize the Iranian leadership. It is a strange tactic that's happening right now. And Jason has some really interesting insights that he gleaned from living in the country and being on the ground and understanding the people. We also talked about his personal experience in Iran, including an interview he did with Anthony Bourdain when he came to town to Tehran for Parts Unknown. So two fantastic interviews to send me off to Wedding Bliss, and I hope you'll enjoy. And here's Mike McFall. On the line with me is Ambassador Mike McFall. He is in a green room at The Late Show with Stephen Colbert again talking about what I imagine was a very weird week for you. So thank you for making time for me and doing the show today. Great to be with you as always, Tommy. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, I imagine you were probably watching the Putin-Trump summit in Helsinki on TV with the rest of us. Did you hear Putin float this suggestion that Mueller could interview witnesses in Russia if Russian officials were given access to you and Bill Browder and this weird cockamamie scheme to sort of pitch an idea that sounded like reciprocity. Did you catch that in real time? And what was your reaction? So I did. I I actually was in Helsinki at the time. Oh, boy. Uh, uh, Yeah, (laughs) I was working for NBC News. I was on live with Lester Holt. And we were, you know, that that experience, maybe you don't know, Tommy, but you're like listening live. Actually, you do know, because you had to do this all the time. (laughs) A presser is happening, and you're having to give commentary right Mm -hmm. afterwards, right? So I'm taking notes, and I'm the Russia guy, so I'm trying to explain things to my NBC colleagues about what is going on. And the big news, of course, which most people focused on, was about how our president wouldn't defend his own intelligence community, instead, you know, said Putin did a good job of saying he didn't do it because he was strong. So that, everybody was focused on that. But I did catch this cockamamie story, and I even tried to explain it to Lester Holt in real time before we went live. And it was, I want to be clear, he didn't mention my name at the time. Mm -hmm. But what Putin said is, in return for allowing Mueller's guys to go over and witness Russian officials interrogate their 
GRU military intelligence officers. He wanted his government to witness the interrogation of American intelligence officers who allegedly, in this crazy cockamamie scheme, had helped Bill Browder, this businessman, uh, who used to do a lot of business in Russia, launder money. He actually said $400 million, (laughs) allegedly, that Browder had taken out. And then he gave some of that to the Clinton campaign. And Putin even went out of his way uh, to explain the treaty under which this could happen. And I'm sure nobody was paying attention about that. It's called an MLAT for your listeners. Uh, But I know that treaty, and (laughs) I was thinking, this is crazy. So crazy. He is assigning a false equivalency between these Russian indicted criminals and the U.S. intelligence community. Yeah. So fans of the show know that Bill Browder has been a guest before. He was a hedge fund guy who made a whole ton of money in Russia and wrote a great book called Red Notice, all about this experience. But he ultimately hired a lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky, uh, who was a the truth teller, a freedom fighter, an anti-corruption you know, force for good in Russia who was killed by the Putin regime, right? And Browder has made his life fighting for justice for Magnitsky and and has right. worked hard to get sanctions on the Russian regime. Is that a decent summary? Yeah, that's a great summary, Tommy. Well done. But I want to make one footnote. I, he did not mention my name right. at that press okay. conference. Okay, okay. It was only when I'm flying back uh, from Helsinki, Helsinki to San Francisco, Finnair, uh, about five hours into the flight, thank God I had Wi-Fi, I started yeah. getting pinged by Russian journalists. And that's because then the spokesman for the general prosecutor's office went and gave more detail about this this offer. And in that uh, description, one, he named me and uh, 11 other Americans, I think. And two, he made it very clear that they considered us uh, suspects in this conspiracy. So it wasn't just a talk to us to get some information, we were suspected criminals that they wanted to interview. And that's when I learned that I was part of Helsinki. Helsinki was a complete disaster for many, many reasons. I I think it probably will go down in history as the worst summit between a Russian and American leader ever. In my academic world, that's already the ratings are giving, but I didn't realize that I personally was going to be part of this you know, historic, in quotation marks, uh, summit in Helsinki. God. And you write about your treatment by Putin in your fantastic book, Cold War to Hot Peace. I mean, he viewed you as a as a guy who was a rabble rouser fighting for democracy and, and you know, sort of a, an enemy of his. But did this feel like a, a whole new level of attack from the Putin regime? Yes. And, and, you know, I wrote that whole book, Tommy, so that I could educate people about how this regime works, because all those things you just said are true. Uh, I've been dealing with his disinformation about me when I was in the government for years and to this day from his proxies. You know, sometimes they got really nasty, accusing me of being a pedophile, for God's sakes. Uh, That's the lengths they went. But I have to say, I felt like that chapter, especially writing this book and finishing it, had closed for me, right? Mm -hmm. I, I cannot travel to Russia. I'm on their sanctions list. That means I can't do research on Russia. And so I had just kind of, uh, by the time my book was published a few weeks ago, thought, okay, that chapter's closed. I'm actually spending a lot of time thinking about China these days, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> and so for him to do that and, and go after me explicitly, naming me, threatening to 
uh, charge me with a crime. And then once you're done with that, if you're charged in absentia and found guilty in absentia, then they can go to Interpol and use red notices, as Bill Browder's book is called, to harass me and to try to arrest me around the world. And I just thought, oh, my God, I thought I was done with all of this muck of the Putin regime. Mm -hmm. I've been away for four years now from the government, and here they are again trying to intimidate me, you know, sitting in Palo Alto, California. They're not done with me. And and let's just be clear so your listeners understand, this is about politics. Mm -hmm. This is about silencing his critics. Bill Browder is at the top of the list, and and he has been courageous in what he's done. But if you look at all those other, well, I I don't know all those other names. I shouldn't speak for them all, but several of them are other critics of the Putin regime, but um, I'm obviously you know at the top of that list. It's nuts. So I've seen some analysts online say, in some ways, this type of proposal is a bit is typical of Putin, right? I mean, you you float a counter offer that sounds like it may be fair, or yep. there's a reciprocity. Oh yeah, you want to interview our guys, we'll interview yours. But yep. what is actually shocking about it is Trump's reaction that he thought it was interesting or was willing to consider it. Do you agree with that analysis? Yes. So first of all, it is a classic Putin tactic. It's called Mm whataboutism. You know, so if these are your criminals that you think they're criminals, well, here's our list of criminals. Let's uh, have our investigators, you know, come to America, come to Russia and and, uh, interrogate them. Uh, To be clear, he said that uh, Russians would interview their GRU military intelligence officers, but Mueller's team could sit in. And let's just pause for a moment and just realize that in of itself is a stupid, empty offer. If Putin is going to stand before the world and lie standing right next to the president of the United States, guess what? Eleven military intelligence officers from Russia are going to do exactly the same thing. So nothing in there. And when it happened in real time, yeah, this is cockamamie crazy. And remember, the sometimes whataboutism is about real events, right? Mm -hmm. Making moral equivalent arguments about real things. So one of Putin's favorites is, well, we took Crimea, but you took Kosovo. So isn't this the same? What about, what about Kosovo? What's weirder about this one is that the American actions, the alleged American actions, are completely fabricated, right? Nothing to do with reality. Yeah. Yeah. And there our president stood and said, that was a great idea. Now, I'm going to make a confession, Tommy. When he said it then, I thought he just didn't understand what was going on, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what an MLAT treaty is. He probably never heard of Bill Browder. And maybe that underscores why it's not such a great idea to have President Trump in the room with President Putin for two hours. Yeah, I don't think point. this was the only thing that he was probably confused about when Putin was talking to him. But I gave him the benefit of the doubt, okay? All right, you screwed that one up. But two days later, back on, you know, back at the White House, his press spokesperson got up and was asked a question about it. And instead of saying, this is ridiculous offer under no conditions, are we going to let American government officials be interrogated with questions from Russia, mm-hmm. the White House said, oh, we're looking into it, and the president's going to talk to his team. And even on the third one, right? So you get two mulligans, I guess. <laughs> the Trump administration, even the third time, at least thankfully, she said, we're not going to entertain that deal. But she called the offer a sincere offer from Putin. Man. And I hope she just doesn't understand what she said. 
But anybody that thinks that this is a sincere offer from Putin doesn't understand Putin and doesn't understand the nature of this regime. One last thing, though. I I do want to give the State Department credit. They made a very strong statement, called it absurd, if I recall. Mm -hmm. And that was the right thing to do. There was just one little caveat, Tommy. She said that the State Department spokesperson said, while I can't speak for the White House, this is our position. And I was thinking of you. I was thinking, imagine back when we were in the White House for somebody, one of your counterparts at one of the other uh, agencies would go on the record to say, well, this is the position of the State Department or the Justice Department, but we'll let you go talk to Tommy Vitar to to, to figure out what their policy is. And I think that was also a statement about the nature of the the Trump administration. (sighs) I I honestly can't even imagine it. Yeah. Well, so Trump clearly was poorly informed or malicious. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, poorly informed. The good news is you have a lot of people who know you, respect you, and who have worked with you in Republican circles, Democratic circles, national security circles, to the point where by a vote of 98 to 0, the Senate approved a proposal to oppose sending U.S. officials to be interrogated by Russians. So protecting you from extraordinary rendition is apparently a one of the last remaining bipartisan issues in 2018. Does that feel yeah. good? Is that? Or yeah, is that... I mean, it shouldn't have to happen, yeah. right? And uh, it, had the White House just said the obvious, it didn't happen. But because they didn't, there was this. I mean, I, I got to be honest with you. I was shocked at the outpouring. You know, hashtag protect McFall and uh, all kinds of people, Democrats and Republicans, went on the record. And many more called me privately, Tommy, just to mm-hmm. say, uh, we have your back. And then, as you said, uh, there it's very rare you get a 98 to 0 vote uh, on anything, anything in the U.S. Senate. And so that did make me feel good. But that's the story's not over. I just want to make sure people understand that. So that's good. They're not going to have us be interrogated. But I really hope that the Trump administration now will signal ahead of time that under no conditions – uh, will they tolerate the Russian government indicting and convicting U.S. government officials for doing their job when they were in the government? Because if they start that, that is a dangerous, dangerous precedent yeah. for all of our diplomats serving all over the world, for our military serving all over the world. They just got to bat that idea down and they have to do it now. Yeah, you are 100% right. I read in the press that you were planning to meet with officials at the Trump White House today. Did that happen? And, and if so, what was it like being back in the old stomping grounds? Was that a little strange? Well, I, I am uh, in Washington or was in Washington this morning. I'll be back there tomorrow to talk with many different government officials about my situation. And my message is just what I said just now that, you know, make clear to your Russian interlocutors that this is not going to be tolerated. And we're not going to start chasing uh, U.S. government officials around the world on the Interpol. And I just hope they'll, uh, you know, pass that message on. That's why I've come to Washington. You know, the content of what I talked about, we, I don't want to talk about. Sure. But I will say, Tommy, uh, uh, the last time I was in the White House was December 2016. Our former boss had a reception for uh, ambassadors, um, you know, right before he left office. It was a melancholy day, but also uh, great to see all those people, our mutual colleagues. 
this is our this is my first time being back in the old executive office building today and you know uh the the first thing i saw that w- reminded me of we're in a new era was those photos jumbos of the president and the vice president where president obama and president vice president biden used to be that that was uh i noted that yeah uh, that was a little weird <laughs> a little weird. I'm trying to, yeah, it was a little weird. Thank you. Yeah. I couldn't quite, trying to be diplomatic. I know, um, I know. You're good at uh, it. But I do want to say, on this set of issues, we can have policy debates about certain things. And that's normal. That's called democracy, right? We cannot have a partisan debate about whether we're going to offer up American government officials, including our intelligence officers. Remember, that's what Putin said first and foremost, to dictators like Putin. No. And this is not Democrat-Republican. This is an American national security issue. And I, and I really, really hope the Trump administration will understand it in those terms. Yeah, me too. Mike, thank you for talking to me. I'm sorry you had to deal with this shit this week. I mean, what a frightening, terrible chapter to have to go through. I hope it goes exactly as you said, and the Trump administration will quickly completely rule out any cooperation here because it is outrageous. I think it probably speaks highly of your character and the work you've done that Vladimir Putin dislikes you this much. And if people well, want to and people yeah. want to find out why. <laughs> you know, yeah, being on Putin's shit list, I guess, yeah. uh, counts for something. Yeah. Uh, right. And I am proud of what I did there. And I wanted to explain that in the book, but also explain the nature of this regime, because we got to push back on this yep. regime. We as Americans have to stand together. Uh, they do some very belligerent things, including against Americans. And it's time to push back. That's right. And the book is fantastic. From Cold War to Hot Peace, you've talked to me at great length about it on this show. You will learn more about U.S.-Russia relations uh, by reading that book than through almost anything else you can do. So thank you for doing this. It's unbelievable to me that you made time for me from a green room in New York City uh, when you've been traveling all over the place lately. So I am so grateful and uh, hope to see you in person soon. Thanks for having me, Tommy. Really appreciate it. All right, buddy. See you soon. Bye-bye. And when we come back, my interview with Jason Resign of the Washington Post, I just want to give you a quick heads up that there was a slight audio issue on the other end of this conversation. So you will hear Jason's audio from a phone call. Not perfect or ideal, but I think it will be worth your time. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food 
contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. So, Jason, late on Sunday night when many of us were either asleep or sad that the HBO Sunday night programs were over, Donald Trump was busy rage tweeting. He said, never, ever threaten the United States again or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. I tried to do that in an all caps voice, but I don't know that I. Yeah, that sounded all caps. Thank you very much. Um, Good effort. That was a shouted tweet at Iranian President Rouhani. It was reportedly in response to Rouhani making a comment advising the U.S. against continuing its hardline policies against Iran. What did you make against this latest all-caps broadside? Well, the timing of it was really interesting. I was down in uh, Simi Valley that night where Secretary of State Pompeo was addressing the Iranian community in an event called Supporting Iranian Voices. And I think the president's tweet came out just after Secretary Pompeo made his remarks and, you know, I think it's, it's a part of this call and response that's been going on between Tehran and Washington at various decibels for almost four decades now. But I think that we're, we're in a really volatile moment. Um, and, you know, I, I just don't see how the president trying to uh, kind of poke Iran at this point helps anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, and sadly, diplomacy by obnoxious tweet is now... One of our main exports, Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, responded saying, color us unimpressed. The world heard even harsher <laughs> bluster a few months ago. The Iranians have heard them, albeit more civilized ones, for 40 years. Uh, he's not wrong about that. We've been around for millennia and seen fall of empires, including our own, which lasted more than the life of some countries. Be cautious, all caps. Uh, this is starting <laughs> to feel like North Korea all over again. Are you worried about this rhetoric escalating or is this just the same bullshit for 40 years, as Zarif sort of says. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of the same bullshit. And I think that, uh, you know, we will hear bluster from from various voices within Iran and we'll hear other more tempered voices and, and others, frankly, calling for renewed dialogue uh, with the United States. So, you know, I, I think 
it's just, um, as many people have pointed out, potentially a diversionary tactic to so many of the other things that are going on. But, you know, when you look at Iran's position in the world, uh, right there at the Strait of Hormuz, the, the flow of oil mm-hmm. and uh, Iran's really ramped up capabilities uh, regionally, it just doesn't seem like uh, something that we should be tempting fate with. Yeah. So let's just sort of dig into that for one second. The Strait of Hormuz sure. is sort of a choke point in the Gulf, right, where all oil passes through. So if something... The vast majority of oil, I can't remember the percentage, right. but it's, it's, you know, it's the main conduit for, you know, oil to get to the rest of the world. It has to pass through there. There's right. no other way. And, you know, Iran uh, and its military and the IRGC you know, have a strong presence there. Yeah, very active Navy. They have these little boats that will go out and harass the biggest destroyers they can find. Uh, it's nearly led to a whole series of incidents. So that's not great. As you mentioned earlier, sort of Iran has stepped up its efforts to, you know, exert uh, its influence in places outside its borders. So there's Yemen, uh, there's various cyber hacking efforts. So Trump's not wrong to be frustrated with a lot of Iranian activity, right? Is that fair? Not at all. I mean, you know, one of the things that that I thought and wrote after uh, Secretary Pompeo's speech was none of this stuff that he's saying is necessarily wrong. Uh, You know, Iran is up to all sorts of malign behavior and has been for a very long time. But I think that was one of the main reasons that the last administration tried to engage Iran. And, you know, in in my understanding, you know, they they took on the hardest issue to resolve, the nuclear issue. Mm Mm-hmm and uh, were able to come to an agreement. Now, people might, may or may not like the terms of that agreement, but it was an agreement that was made between Iran, the United States, and all the other major powers, and the EU, which really curtailed Iran's nuclear activities and, and made it uh, very difficult for them to hide any, if not impossible, mm-hmm. uh, clandestine activities within their territory. So, yeah. I mean, I think what's happening right now is the last administration diffused a, a potential crisis, and uh, this one, with the help of you know, the Israeli government and uh, Saudi Arabia, is trying to renew the same case that, that just got resolved. Yeah, you, might, you could probably lump the UAE in there. I mean, I could be wrong. No, man, I'm with you. Like, look, I, you know, I feel like I'm an Iran apologist because I'm so frustrated with Trump's decision to pull out of the Iran deal. So I do just want to level set and make everyone clear that the enemy of my enemy is not my friend in this instance. Well, like, they're not let, good let guys, me, right? Let me echo that. I mean, yeah. as, as their exalted guest for 544 days, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm no fan of theirs. And I'd love nothing more to see the theocratic regime in Iran disappear, replaced by a secular democracy where the Iranian people are allowed to express themselves and there's no uh, gender apartheid and people can, can flourish and, and, and grow their lives. Unfortunately... I don't see what we're doing right now being the the way to help promote that. Yeah. Um, so you know, you and I are on the same page. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I want to get more into your uh, unique expertise into the Iranian regime, your time in Tehran, and your uh, unintended stay at the even prison uh, holiday suites or whatever the fuck they call it. But you mentioned Pompeo's speech a bunch of times. So this tweet, the timing of Trump's tweet on Sunday night, the Pompeo speech, they are making this big PR push. That's designed to name and shame and destabilize Iran's leadership, in my opinion. Pompeo accused the supreme leader of Iran of controlling a personal off-the-books hedge fund worth $95 billion that he said acts as a slush fund for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, uh, which is you know a, a sort of paramilitary force that does a lot of 
the bad activity that we don't like in places like Yemen or cracks down on the Iranian people. And he's trying to make the case, Pompeo was, that the people in charge are getting fat and happy and making a ton of money while average people suffer. Is that true? And do you think that that kind of message from the Trump administration can be heard by the Iranian people? Like, are they the right messengers? Look, I mean, I think that that message has been relayed to them through their own experience for many years. Right. There is a lot right. of truth to that. Uh, I, look, I, I can't speak to uh, the numbers that Secretary Pompeo was, was thrown around that night. But I will tell you that, you know, as someone who lived in Iran and reported from there during the most severe sanctions, uh, which, you know, by the way, led to Iran uh, negotiating with us, you know, the effect that it has on people is staggering. The way your livelihood and the makeup of your life shifts, in some cases almost overnight, is shocking. And, you know, I think that the, the promise of, of the JCPOA from the Iranian side, from the Iranian leadership side to its own people, was we're going to get you out of the, from under the rock of sanctions and help to bring back your, your spending power and help to um, improve the quality of your lives. Now, is there rampant corruption that lines the coffers of all of Iran's clerical leaders? Yeah, certainly. But at the same time, by cutting off all supplies to money, by cutting off oil sales, by making it difficult for Iranians to uh, import all manner of goods, for making it almost impossible for them to travel, Right, you know, we have this travel ban in, in place that is now going to make it, except in the rarest cases, kind of outlawing Iranians and citizens of several other countries from even visiting the United States. By doing that, it also devalues their passport in the eyes of other nations. What you're doing is really just trapping these people in uh, an increasingly difficult situation. And you know, while, as I said. Uh, some of the things that Secretary Pompeo was was saying about you know corrupt Iranian leaders certainly is true, but that doesn't mean that by you know cutting off all economic activities uh, that's going to be beneficial to people. It'll be the opposite. Yeah, I mean, this feels like a not at all subtle regime change strategy, which shouldn't surprise you from John Bolton or Pompeo or any of these guys. But yeah, as you lay out, there are some problems here. One, we're about to sanction Iran's banking sector. By November, we've told every other country on the planet to stop buying oil from Iran or they might sanction us. So that kind of complicates this whole empathy with the suffering of the Iranian people message. Two, the nuclear program is popular in Iran. And then the thing that I can't get my brain around is what evidence there is that destabilizing the current government would lead to a more Western-friendly government as opposed to empowering the military and the IRGC and senior goons like Qasem Soleimani, who is viewed as a murderous, terrorist-supporting thug by the United States. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I don't get the end game here. Well, you're not alone. I don't get it either, and I don't think that the administration gets it either, right? I think that they have this fantasy that everything is just going to work out. And, you know, my attitude has always been that change will come to Iran when people inside demand it. And people are demanding it, right? People yeah. are going out protesting whether it's protesting against the, the mandatory hijab for women, whether it's protesting, uh, you know, back pay that's not being paid, whether it's protesting water shortages, there's a lot to be angsty about there. And there always has been. But, you know, people are feeling more emboldened now than ever before. And it's not because of anything that we're necessarily doing. Yeah. It's because 
the trend of history is moving in that direction. And the fact that, you know, the penetration of, of smartphones and Internet really in the hands of almost anybody in the country who wants it mm-hmm. is opening up their eyes to all sorts of realities that are going on inside the rest of the world, things that they're not being able to have access to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to equate Iran to North Korea, and I'll be very honest, I've never been to North Korea. I'm speculating here. Yep. Uh, you, you can't make a comparison between these two countries. They're, they have nothing in common with each other. Uh, Iranians have had uh, a very direct and long relationship through trade, through commerce, through diplomacy for literally centuries, if not millennia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just don't see uh, that stopping. Yeah, me either. Do you know the uh, the little right-wingers on the internet like to call me Tehran Tommy? I think the, alliter- the, the alliteration <laughs> I, just I get, speaks I get to them. Like that all the time. <laughs> I've never been to Iran. I've never been to North Korea either. I'd love to go to Tehran. Like, what is Tehran like? To ask a stupid question. <laughs> Tehran is is a really vast city. You know, I, I think that the census would officially say that there's about 14, 15 million people living wow. there, but it's like LA. million more come in every day to go to work. You know, it's perpetually choked with traffic and and smog. And it's not exactly the most beautiful city architecturally in the world, but it's got its charm because there's a, there's a real rhythm to life there. Um, you know, I think it's the melting pot of Iran, which is a country that many people forget is home to uh, 80 million people, many of them from very varying ethnic, religious, mm-hmm. social backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And you know, everybody wants to come to that city. It's not a particularly re- religious city. I've spent a lot of time in other parts of the Middle East and uh, places like Turkey as well, where, you know, when the call to prayer comes you know, in Istanbul, you will know it because there are loudspeakers blaring all over the town, hmm. right? Or Dubai or anywhere else in the Gulf. In Iran, Tehran specifically, it's a city that is sort of on the surface, has a lot of symbolism of Islam, a lot of memorials to people who died in the, in the war with Iraq in the 1980s. But it's ultimately a pretty vibrant uh, and in some ways really secular town. And, you know, there's huge variations in the types of people that live there from, you know, the poorest to the wealthiest people in the country. Uh, and it, it's, it's a place that, you know, despite what happened to me, remains in my imagination one of my favorite places to be. Wow, that's cool. Hopefully we'll all get to go there sometime soon when things. I hope so. I, you know, I, I hope all of us can, and you know, I, I would like to see. And that's another thing. I mean, it's a country that just a handful of Americans have visited over over the years. Right. Um, before I was arrested, up until 2014 or so, the average number of Americans who visited Iran each year was was fewer than 500, wow. and that included non-Iranian Americans. Mind yeah. you. Yeah. That included aid workers and journalists and diplomats, mm-hmm. uh, people working at international organizations like UNESCO or UNICEF. Uh, so that's a tiny, tiny, tiny number. And, you know, I always felt like a, a sort of a kid in a candy store. I mean, if you're an adventurous person that, that wants to see the world, a fascinating place to be. Yeah. Who wants to tell new stories? I mean, the U.S. Embassy closed in 1979 for very good reasons, but um, yeah. you know, just time and time again in, in the, you know, North Korea, Iran, Pakistan for a period, the the closing down of embassies, the shutting down of uh, exchanges of individuals is just so damaging. Here you are, BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue. 
panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Let me ask you about the nuclear program for a minute, because yeah. it feels like three years ago, but it was, I think, not even three months ago that Donald Trump walked away from the nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, this yeah. was a deal that gave Iran economic relief for making major concessions to curtail and stop its nuclear program. How did people feel about the deal in Iran when it was first agreed to? And, and what was the response to Trump deciding to tear it up? I think at the, at the moment when it was agreed to in July of 2015, there was a moment of national celebration. There was a, 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 um, a real strong campaign by opponents, domestic opponents inside Iran of the deal to do whatever they could to uh, make sure that it didn't happen. But once it did happen, it was considered a great victory and it was advertised as such through Iran's various propaganda means, whether it was state huh. television or the internet or, or newspapers. To the extent that, you know, Zarif, the foreign minister, and his negotiating team were really lionized, treated like heroes hmm. uh, for a few months. But then when the, when the deal was implemented, I think some of the, uh, the luster kind of diminished because the massive sanctions relief, which was promised to the people, didn't really materialize in the way that they had hoped. And I think that the Obama administration was aware that there was going to be a, a limited bump in the short term, especially partially and, and largely because the Iranian regime uh, had done so many nasty things over the years that, yeah. that many international companies didn't want to go there and do business. They were yeah. concerned that about the safety of their staffs, concerned that new punitive measures might be put on Iran, so it wouldn't be a, a place to invest in long term. So, mm. you know, over the last two years or so, it's, it's lost some of its, its luster. But ultimately, I think when President Trump decided to pull out of it, it was hugely disappointing for a vast num number of Iranians who thought that 
it still could be the beginning of a, of a new era. I mean, I think that there's a general consensus within Iranian society and Iranian officialdom that the country can't go on without a relationship with the United States. Interesting. What country can go on without a relationship with the United States? Not Iran, I don't think. After all of these years, that fundamental pillar of death to America and antagonism towards America mm-hmm. is starting to seem like more of a liability than, than a revolutionary strength. And I think people are, are much more open about talking about that internally in the country than they ever have been before. So it's, it's surprising to me that, you know, you wouldn't just let those things right. take shape themselves. I mean, I, I was not very optimistic about the sanctions that the Obama administration put on because, you know, after 2009, after the very questionable re-election or re-selection of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad as president mm-hmm. in Iran, you know, there was a very dark period of time in that country. But little by little, people started pushing back. And, you know, the the avenues of free expression, not in terms of people coming out and being activists against policy, but people pushing the limits about what they could do socially was something that, that anybody that was living there would see, you know, on a month-to-month basis. And, you know, in the summertime, the morality police would come crack down on women because they were showing too much hair or too much skin. But, you know, over time, it's clear that that's a, a losing battle. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like at no point have we really gotten on the right side of this. And, you know, my opinion is the Iranian people have never had uh, a friend in their own government or in this one. I mean, it just seems like that spontaneous political courage is far more likely to lead to a regime change outcome than a Pompeo speech. And that's what I don't get here. Like, is is President Rouhani popular domestically? Do you think these machinations out of Washington are going to hurt him? I don't think that they're going to hurt him. I mean, I think he's already very much sidelined and maybe even a lame duck with three three years to go. You know, he is the ultimate regime insider. But, you know, 20 years ago when you had the first so-called reformist president, Mohammad Khatami, there was a period of time where he was able to push forward some social reforms. People call those minor social reforms now, but as somebody who was traveling to the country at the time, you know, the changes between 2001 and 2005 were pretty dramatic. You know, I, I think that in the last year or two of, of his presidency, though, he was sidelined as well. And this was sort of a, a common trait. You know, Iran has a, a supreme leader who uh, ostensibly gets to decide everything if he wants to. Uh, but there's pretty robust politics in that country. And, uh, you know, I, I'd be the last person to say, that I have a, a favorite or somebody that I would like to see do well there. But what I would like to see is any kind of force that's pushing for a freer, more open, secular, and equal society, uh, we should be getting behind them. And I don't think that that's necessarily Rouhani, but you know, the alternatives oftentimes are much nastier. Yeah. So we've alluded to this a couple times. You were the Tehran bureau chief for the Washington Post and your Iran expertise did not come easily. Can you talk about why July 22nd is an important and infamous day in, in your life? Yeah, I mean, you know, July 22nd was, um, was the day in 2014 that my wife and I were very um, shockingly arrested in our homes and, and, and dragged off to uh, Avin prison, uh, where I was kept for 544 days. 
she was kept there for 72 days, all of them in solitary confinement. And, you know, it was unfortunate, very unfortunate uh, turning point in our lives. We were both successful journalists working for international media. We had a good life, uh, a life that we liked very much. And that was all taken away from us. We're still trying to put it all back together. Did they take her to harass you? I mean, I, it just, it's shocking to me that they would do treat both of you like that. I mean, did you guys ever figure that out or, or understand why? Well, I, I think that uh, as we go over the next few months and I'm able to tell my, my story in a more kind of complete way through my book and, and other focused opportunities to talk specifically about that year and a half, there was a lot of things at play internally inside Iran and within the, the negotiations with the United States. And I think, you know, the, the most succinct way I can put it right now is that we just caught, got caught in the, the eye of a geopolitical hurricane. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're part of um, the victims of that. Yeah. You are actually the third journalist I've talked to on this show that was either captured or, you know, held hostage. Uh, David Rode was taken by the Taliban. Jonathan Alpery was held in Syria. So I think it's just a good reminder that the press is not the enemy of the people in any way, shape, or form. And they, a lot of reporters put themselves at great personal risk to help us understand what the hell is going on in the world, which, as we've discussed in a place like Ron, is we're almost entirely reliant on reports from you or Thomas Erdbrink, who wrote for the New York Times to figure out what the hell was going on, because, you know, there's no embassy and... Um, intelligence collection is uh, sporadic at best, maybe? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I appreciate you calling that out and mentioning the importance of the work we do, and, and it's sometimes a great peril. You know, I, I saw David uh, wrote at an event recently in memory of, uh, of James Foley. Yeah. Uh, and there was other journalists there as well, others who didn't spend time um, as hostages in different parts of the world. And, you know, there is a a streak in all of us that, you know, really wants to get at the truth and and try and explain difficult to understand cultures, events, trends, experiences to folks back here in America. And that's all we were trying to do. That's all I was ever trying to do. Right. And, you know, I, I think we should be doing everything we can to, to bolster the strength of, of media and the attacks on, on the press from this president have not only undermined our ability to do our jobs here in the United States, but around the world. And I think it's going to take years to undo that. It didn't start with President Trump, but you know, he's amplified this angst and given cover for a lot of uh, bad, bad, bad actors, whether it's Erdogan in Turkey or the president of the Philippines. You know, we've started to take so much abuse and you know, to the extent that in, in a country like India, which is you know, the world's largest democracy, you know, there's more newspaper readers every day in India than there are citizens of the United States of America. Yeah. But just in the last several months, we've had multiple journalists, I was reporting on this not too long ago, multiple journalists really you know, assassinated in the most vile ways, run over by cars or trucks for doing their job. Yeah. And, you know, that that tells me that those people that are carrying out such acts consider us somehow less than human. Yeah. And uh, I, I'd like to make the counter argument that, you know, actually, we are all very human. Yes. And uh, and all we're trying to do is 
shed light on, on common humanity and, and tell the stories of people uh, in places where if we weren't there, nobody would. You know, you mentioned some of the horrific targeting of journalists abroad. You know, you've also written recently about the murders at the Capital Gazette newspaper in Annapolis. Yeah. Did you find that that was a tipping point at this moment? I mean, what concerned you most about that incident and how we move forward from it? Well, look, I mean, I think that that was one more example of, of exactly uh, what I'm talking about. I mean, I have the feeling that if I'm in the position to sit down and have a conversation with somebody and ask them questions or tell them my point of view or, or tell them about something that I know, that I can uh, convince them to take a second look or reconsider their own positions. But when somebody walks into an office building and uh, begins shooting people one by one because of the job that they do, that's not something that I think we have an easy answer to coping with. Mm -hmm. What I really would have liked to see is, uh, you know, President Trump come out much more aggressively in support of the press. I would have loved to see the flag waving at half-mast that week. He didn't do that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's just a, a general contempt, not just for the work that we do, but for the really what I would consider sacred right that we have uh, to free expression. Yeah, agreed. You and your wife were arrested in Tehran shortly after talking with Anthony Bourdain for his show Parts Unknown. I really think that the impact of that show from a foreign policy perspective is underappreciated. Like I, Ben Rhodes wrote about how he watched it and he learned about Vietnam and Burma and it helped him sort of push policies in those places. I used to watch it and feel like I gained more understanding and empathy about cultures than I ever did from reading the newspaper or intelligence reports. What did Anthony Bourdain mean to you? And I don't know, what, what was that experience like for you and him having done that show and then it leading to this horrible, albeit temporary outcome? Look, you know, I want to say very, very plainly, our appearance on uh, his show had nothing to do with us being arrested. Okay. You know, I think that the, the timing was uh, unfortunate and it created the perception in many people's eyes that we had been arrested uh, for being on, on the show. If anything, it was our appearance on that show that, that really raised our profile in a very real way, right? All of a sudden you had this clip of, not arguably, definitely one of our most beloved television personalities talking to my wife and, my, and I and, you know, yucking it up over some food. Yeah, right? right. And that was shown again and again and again. So, you know, you couldn't write a, a news story that said, you know, his neighbors said he was a quiet man. Right. I mean, you know, we, we were real people that, that were sitting down and, and, and talking with Anthony Bourdain. And I felt like the fact that we were able to be on that show at the time was a, a real, real honor. I mean, I'd been a fan of, of his shows for, for many years. I'd been in touch with producers from the show from the time they were at the Travel Channel about doing a show in, in Iran. I never worked out. And then this all came together in, in a very last-minute kind of way. And, um, look, we've had a lot of champions, mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of angels. And Anthony Bourdain probably the biggest one. I mean, not only uh, did he do right by us and how they handled that episode and, and the, the cutting of it to make sure that it was done in a way that 
wouldn't lead to any more problems for us mm-hmm. than we already had. But, you know, his commitment to our well-being after we were released as well. We had the opportunity to spend time with him. My book, you know, is being published by Anthony Bourdain Books, his imprint at, at Echo, because he, you know, he came to me and made the case that, that I should do it with him. And, and the case that he made was a really powerful one. He said, you know what, we're going to let you do the book that you want to do. People need to hear your story. And, um, you know, his death is, is something that has affected so many people. You know, when, when Yegi and I get recognized in public, this has been the case from, from the day that we got out. I would say nine out of ten people recognize us from, from being on that show. And that's just elevated even more in these last few weeks since his passing. Uh, you know, I have people coming up to me all the time and saying, you know, I never met the guy, but I love the guy. And I can tell you that, you know, I met the guy. I had the opportunity to get to know him. And he was a wonderful human being and um, just meant and means the world uh, to my wife and I. Yeah. He's another person like you uh, who I feel like I know, but I, I've never met in person. But, yeah, he was just so able to cut through the bullshit and focus on humanity. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, one thing that, that people are starting to understand was just, you know, what a good chronicler witness he was, mm-hmm. right? You know, he went all over the world, and he just knew what questions to ask. He knew how to handle himself in those situations. Uh, he was very at ease with himself and others, and for that reason was able to really draw you into a place and take the temperature at that moment. And it's, it's incredible to me when you, when you look at the shows, how many of them took place at you know, critical moments in the history of the places that he was visiting yeah. or just ahead of critical moments. I think, you know, we'll be watching his shows for decades to come to learn about the world. Yeah, totally. I mean, humility and a sense of humor goes a long, long way. Definitely. Your book, Prisoner, is a memoir about the 18 months you spent in prison. You were released in 2016 as part of a a prisoner exchange with Iran. Why do you think that was able to happen? Do you think such a swap would be possible now? And I mean, were you just unaware of all of this through the duration of these negotiations because you you were kept in solitary confinement or isolated from the news? I had um, inklings that something was going on, and I I could understand that from periodic visits from my wife and my mom. They didn't realize what was happening behind the scenes, but as you know, there was a lot of public rhetoric and public conversation, public debate about my fate and the fate of other Americans being held in Iran throughout the entire time, whether it was coming from Washington or whether it was coming from Iran. I think one of the, the arguments that I made a few weeks ago, a couple months ago now, when the Trump administration was really making the case to pull out of the nuclear deal was that, you know, you would be leaving behind these Americans who are still stuck in prison there. Mm-hmm. The very same people who were saying, you know, we can't make a, a nuclear deal with Iran while Americans are still in prison, that this should be a prerequisite to entering into any long-term negotiations uh, or long-term pact with Iran, we're completely silent on the issue of Americans being detained there now. And, you know, my concern is that now that that deal is over, the opportunity to negotiate to speak directly with Iranian officialdom has diminished dramatically. And I don't know uh, what sort of channels remain open. I have 
tried to make myself available to whoever wants to talk to me about my experience and, and how I think it should should be handled. Uh, but, you know, I, I wish that there was more attention paid to these cases. I've written about most of them. I always respect the, the wishes of families. But I think ultimately when an American citizen is being held abroad, uh, he's got a better chance than the citizens of other countries because your government cares for you. But they don't care for you if they don't know about you. And, you know, I think it's wise to raise the, the awareness around these cases as much as you can. I agree. Jason, I am really excited to read your book when it comes out and incredibly grateful that you spent some time Thank you. talking with me. It's so. Can I come back on and talk about it when it comes out? Hell yeah, absolutely. We're going to pitch the hell out of this book because it's so nice to talk to someone about Iran who actually lived there and knows people and, you know, understands what it's like. The traffic in Tehran, that's not something that most intelligence officials have a firsthand experience dealing with. And maybe that's the key. Well, Tommy, I hope when people read this book, they, they walk away with a better understanding of me and, and my life, but more importantly, that place and what attracted me to that place. And, you know, you don't have to agree with the government in power to feel an affinity to a people right? or to a culture, to a history, to a land. And I certainly, you know, despite everything that happened to me, still love that place. Yeah. Always will. Well, I think that speaks well of you in addition to Iran. So thank you again for doing the show. Keep doing great work, man. This is a really awesome conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tommy. I had a good time. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to Pod Save the World. Next week, I will be on my honeymoon, but the show is still here. I have a fantastic interview with Bassem Youssef, who's a hilarious comedian from Egypt. And we talked about, you know, the Arab Spring, his time in Cairo, and how he came to be called the Egypt's John Stewart. So stay tuned for that. You will love that conversation. Have a good one.